What's up guys? Just a quick update on how you can find World of Wally. Uh, we are on pretty much every listening platform that you get your podcast at. If you can't find us, please drop us a message and we'll work diligently to try to get on that platform so you'll have the opportunity to hear us. Also, you can find us on Facebook, also at World of Wally. Uh, on the Facebook page, you will be able to catch up on previous episodes and also updates and storylines and pretty much anything else that uh, we have going on here at World of Wally. So, uh, like I said, guys, that's where you can check us out. And now, let's get back to the episode. <laughs> Program note, excerpts and guest commentary do not always reflect the opinions and views of those of us here at the World of Wally. Thank you. All right, guys, we're back from the break. Um, as promised, I have Mr. John Warren again. He has graciously agreed to a five-episode run with us, so this will be episode two of five. Uh, he's going to provide some information to us today about the, uh, the actual title of this episode, which is Red Pill Apocalypse, and he's going to explain exactly what that means. Uh, before we get to the, that segment, the final segment, in this segment, we're going to talk about something that he and I had actually discussed offset about how nothing that can be done uh, by this current administration concerning COVID-19 and the coronavirus is going to work out well for the Republican slash conservative movement. Now, here's my opinion on the matter. Here is how I see it. If there is a situation like COVID-19 I personally still feel like we're overreacting to a point. Um, I understand getting ahead of it, trying to get it under control. I don't have an issue with that. I do think we've gone a little to the extreme. I would like to see it pared back just a little bit. Uh, we are essentially, uh, if you're not a frontline service provider, uh, like truck drivers or, or grocery retail or something like that, you are essentially locked down in your home, or at least you're supposed to be because that's what they're asking you to do. So. They're, the stimulus package that they're talking about pushing through. Trump's wanting to get money into the economy. He's wanting to get a stimulus package going. One of the proposals that they are actually considering and going to have a vote on is the family stimulus package concerning coronavirus or COVID-19. $1,000 per adult in the house, $500 for children, with a maximum of $3,000. Now, he's talking about two months. That's $6,000 per household. Now here is where he is digging his own hole and he does not realize it because the House of Representatives, this is the perfect situation for them to step in and go, hey, let's don't do two months, let's do six months, let's do a year. Six months is actually, in, in their, even in their minds, that would be feasible, six months. So you're looking at, what, six months times $3,000, that's $18,000. A lot of individuals on the lower scale of income don't make $18,000 a year. So, hey, yeah, let's sit home, do absolutely nothing, do what the government tells us to a T. Let's make $18,000 and let's move on. But the problem is at the end of six months, you're gonna have a bunch of folks that have gotten comfortable with that situation and go, you know what? Why should I even go back to work? Let's just see how long we can ride this COVID-19 scare out and see collecting money from the government. 
Um, that's why when I was talking to some friends this past week and then of course talking to John Offset, this is what concerns me because all I feel like that's going to do is actually weaponize the welfare state. Now, we already have an issue with all the government assistance programs that they are literally out of control. They are running, they're monsters running on their own agenda. Um, so for the Democrats that control the House, they would be insane not to try to push for at least a six month minimum. They are going to be able to use every action that uh, is going on during this epidemic, this pandemic, they're gonna be able to use everything that goes on during this time against President Trump during his reelection um, be it, you know, when he comes November, when he comes election time, and for every other Republican and our conservative candidate running in the future, they're going to be able to use this against them. So, that's just how I feel. I could be totally wrong. I, it's not the first time I've ever been totally wrong, but I'm right a lot of the times. I'm going to ask John how he feels about it, and let's see what he has to say about what I just theorized. John, how do you, how do you, first of all, John, Welcome to the show again this week. Appreciate you having me. Now, you've just heard my rant. Tell me how you feel about what I just said, my, my theory. Well, I was listening, and the one thing that kept popping in my, my mind as you were talking was, uh, we have to remember that we're in a battle of ideologies. Uh, you're absolutely right that this can be used against conservatives, and I, I don't like to use Republican because that does not necessarily mean conservative. We talked about places. that offset. That's why I qualified with both answers. Yep. Um, it's going to be used against them because there's supposed, supposedly an ideology behind each of the parties. Uh, and when it comes down to it, I'm thinking about what November looks like or in some of the uh, Senate and House races. Hey, when it when push came to such shove, you enacted our policies. So our policies, our ideology must be more correct with, than yours. So why are you up here trying to argue the other way? Um, it undermines conservative principles. And at the end of the day, that's all our parties are, is principles, supposedly. Um, so I look at this, the COVID-19 debacle, and we'll call it a debacle, I look at it is the uh, push towards what the socialists have been wanting all along. And yes, I mentioned socialists. Uh, they want uh, cradle to grave, the government takes care of you. And when it came down to this, hey, you don't have, have cash reserves, you don't have food, you don't have this, you don't have money, we'll provide it for you. You don't need to provide for yourself. There is no personal responsibility whatsoever they win. Uh, so you're absolutely correct on that regard. Guys, anybody that does not believe, he, he mentioned socialism, anybody that wants to get a glimpse of what socialism in America would look like, walk into any local grocery store, any grocery retailer in this entire country, and you will see what the eventual result of socialism is going to be. Guys, it just cannot, this country cannot function properly under that concept. First of all, They've asked us to self-isolate because of this pandemic, this, this media-labeled pandemic. And within a week's time, the grocery stores look as if they've been deserted. I mean, you can't find any of the basic necessities you need to survive from a grocery standpoint in any grocery store in America right now. And if you do get them, they're on such a limited number, 
it, it doesn't do you any good unless you're standing there. As I had, I had a lady I spoke to earlier this week. She summed it up best. She was asking a grocery associate in the store that I was actually in, "Hey, when were you gonna have bread in?" And the associate told them, "We get bread about 6:30 in the morning. Store opens at 7 o'clock. By 7:30 or 7:45, we're completely out of bread." She goes, "Oh, so I'll have to be here to stand in line." And the, and the young lady said, "Yes, ma'am, you will." And the, the lady, which was an older lady, she looked to be probably in her, somewhere in her 50s, she says, well, I guess I'm headed to the soup line or to the bread line like they did years ago. And that resonated with me, guys. Talking about standing in the bread line, I mean, we're talking about going all the way back to the days of the Great Depression where folks stood in line for hours just to get a small amount of food just to survive. We are creating a hysteria around this situation that is only making this situation worse, guys. We've got to show level-headedness, we've got to show common sense, and we've just got to show common courtesy to other people. If we could do that, everything's gonna be fine, okay? I promise you, the supply chain will continue to roll as long as we don't exhaust the efforts of those trying to get the supplies to you. What about it, John? What do you, how do you, how you feel about that? Do you, do you think, is the public the reason that, that this situation is amped up to the point it is? Or is it government mishandling? Or is it a combination of both? I was going to say, yes. Um, it's everything. Um, offset, we were talking and I mentioned, we're not going to die from the virus. We're going to die from the cure. Um, we have blown this so overboard we have created such a panic that you've got your hoarders. And I get it, There's we've gotten America against one another. You're hoarding and I need things like that. We've had that discussion. Uh, we're turning against each other. Uh, but also, because of the fear that the media, you know I'm not gonna, I'm gonna bring the media into this. The media has to sell papers when there's blood in the street. So they're hyping it up. The government sees opportunities in this, uh, you know, it's being politicized. We're trying to, and they are trying, and in fairness, they are trying to help people uh, with like the income thing, which is, I think is a band-aid on a bullet wound. But you now have people being sent home, people are losing jobs, they're not having food. When you do have money, you're hoarding it uh, because you don't know how long you're going to be before you get any more. Why is all this happening? It goes back to your hysteria. It goes back to the the government has made such a panic out of this that now we're we've gone crazy. That's what we do. America goes to the extremes. Uh, we always have. Um, I want to bring this back to one thing that you and I have talked about in, in the past. Has anybody looked at how many people died? die on average, and I hate to sound like this is just a numbers game, but it is in a lot of ways. How many people die of the flu every year? It's over 40,000. Another thing, you talk about the flu, I want to add this. A lot of folks are talking about how these numbers of the COVID-19 are starting to explode and starting to escalate. Right. The numbers seem like to be doubling daily. Well, it's real simple. More folks are actually being tested. So if you test more folks, you're going to have a larger chance of more folks being infected. Everybody's getting tested. If everybody in America went to the doctor during the flu season and was tested for the flu, yeah. you'd have astronomical flu numbers also. For example, I've had the flu in the past. I've never gone to the doctor. I knew what was wrong with me. I had the flu. 
So I medicated. I, I did the grandma remedies. I did the over-the-counter stuff. And you know what? If you treat your body better and you get some rest, you suddenly get better from the flu. Same thing's going on with this COVID-19. Everybody that has gone come forward and talked about it on social media and everything else says, hey, after getting some getting some treatment, getting some medication, getting some solid, you know, rest, you know, slow yourself down, get some rest, they suddenly felt better. The majority of these cases are mild cases. Yes, some are extreme cases, I understand that. But if you have a pre-existing condition, of course you're gonna be more susceptible to the actual virus, the attack of the virus. And I understand that, but that's with everything. You know, that's, that's like saying, well, how many folks um, get struck by lightning every year and die from it? I'm pretty sure that the, it's a pretty large number if you get struck by lightning, a lot of folks don't survive a lightning strike. So. Exactly. But anyway, I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to lessen the whole, this whole effect of, of COVID-19 or the coronavirus. I just, I personally think that we've gone a little overboard with our, I understand trying to get ahead of it. I understand, they've seen the numbers from other countries and that's what causes it. You know, in Italy, for example, the mortality rate from it from in Italy is astronomical. But you gotta realize one out of every three people in the country of Italy over the age of 35 have some type of heart condition at this point in their life. They're overweight, they're an aging society, Per capita, they are the oldest civilization in the in the actual world right now. On per capita, hundred thousand people, they are the average oldest, or their what is it? Their median age is the is the like largest number in the world. Yeah. So yes, they're an older, out of shape, health issues. They were a perfect. That's a perfect example of what COVID-19 can do to a group of people that are not prepared to fight such a virus. Well, and I keep bending around not sounding inhuman or, you know, being cruel, but, you know, the problem is, is the government's trying to pretend that it can be everything for everybody. And this is selective outrage. Let me ask you, you mentioned the heart disease. You mentioned the out of shape and all. How is it that on a year by year by year in America, we don't bat an eye at how many people die from heart disease in America? How, why do we not bat an eye at how many people die from uh, diabetic-related issues right. in America? Why do we not bat an eye at how many people die in automobile accidents on our highways every year? We have selective outrage in our country. COVID-19, oh my gosh, it killed a few people. We have to shut the whole country down. And I have to bring literally, it Literally, we've shut the whole country down. We literally shut it down. But I'll give you another example, and, and I just, I'm not trying to go down that road, but it's a perfect example with gun control. Oh my gosh, something happened in one place, so we have to do sweeping changes to the entire way right. America lives based on, most people don't realize that gun deaths actually go down, has been going down every year. Right. Um, but the media, the government, they have something to sell. So what do they have to sell with COVID-19? Socialism. Yeah. Hey, we, we talked about this, shifting gears on this on this topic. We talked about this offset for just a minute or two, and I know you, you have a pretty strong opinion about it. We were talking about not only the, the physical ailment and the physical death associated with this virus, this outbreak, this um, imposed imprisonment into your own homes kind of deal. 
who are the true losers here? We talked about this a little bit last in the last episode that we did about the financial ramifications, but who, and I know I think me and you both agree on this, who actually are, is going to be the largest group affected by this, especially from a financial standpoint? Mm, I don't have to say the media. I mean, we talked about the media, but are you thinking something else? I'm thinking, well, first of all, like you said, if there's not blood in the streets, they don't sell papers, which they don't sell papers anymore. Everything's digital. Right. You get you caught up there, Grandpa. All right, so what about, for example, I want to go down to the nearest mom and pop and get a pizza. They don't oh. have they don't have the capacity to serve it to me in a dine out or delivery capacity. They're an in house kind of place. They're officially shut down. A mom and pop that is cut from a hundred percent worth of business to fifty percent worth of business, and now some of them are down to twenty five percent capacity. They're having to lay all their employees off. Who who actually suffering here? Well, I, mean, I, I see where you're going with that. We, uh, we talked about so much stuff beforehand. I know. I know. Um, this has killed the small business in America. This is going to kill the middle class. Um, we ju- I don't know exactly what day it was passed. It might have been today for all I know. Uh, I don't know that they work today, but um, they just passed an extent, a, a, a modification to the Family Leave Act uh, where starting April the 2nd, your employees are guaranteed two, months, two, two weeks of income up to... And if they have, and if they're caring for somebody, and I don't have the particulars, you can look it up. Uh, if they have someone they're caring for, or their or their schools are closed, it can be up to three months that the employer is supposed to uh, pay their income, they pay them a salary. Interestingly enough, that con- companies that have over 500 employees are exempt from this. Hmm. Um, uh, so. So who's Seems getting, like it's just been the exact opposite, doesn't it? Well, it tells me who pays off the politicians. Exactly. It's uh, all about greasing palms. We talked about this before. Yeah. So a lot of people think, and I heard this discussion talk about during the Obama years, you know, paying your fair share. Um, most people seem to think that small business owners must have some po- some pile of gold in a back room, but the reality is most of it's tied up in land equipment, uh, ask your average farmer how much uh, a combine costs. Yeah. Um, most of the stuff is tied up in, in, in infrastructure. So where's this money coming from? Well, the answer is, well, you can get tax credits for 100% of that. Tax credits only exist after you've paid the taxes. So you're looking at an immediate cash uh, drain uh, if they don't have, they have to pay this up front, and they also have to pay the taxes in order to get the tax credit. Where's the money coming from? Right. Well, the answer to that has been low interest loans they've made of, of to free capital. So now the employer is now carrying debt to to keep this going. How is that? How's that good business principles? But you know, we've learned something from the past. Don't worry about the money. We'll just keep printing. Well, that's true, and that's the reason in the Weimar Republic, you could, it took a uh, wheelbarrow load of um, their money to buy a loaf of bread. Right. Look at uh, Zimbabwe dollars, for example. Uh, I didn't know you could put that many zeros on one uh, dollar <laughs> bill. Um, anyway, I knew, I knew, I mean, I knew, 
I knew that you thought one of the losers was the media, but I also knew that you also knew small business was going to take a huge hit from this. Small, I don't see how small business can survive this. I don't. Yo, that's what I was. That's why I was going back to the stimulus that they're trying to push. Here's the deal: instead of giving the all these households all this money, they need to be channeling part of that money to the small businesses, those that can't survive without this money because we're closing them down. We're essentially putting a padlock on these folks dream is what we're doing oh yeah absolutely um and and small business keeps this country alive and we just we just killed it um, just, just remember guys we're, we're fixing to go to a quick break we're gonna come back and then we're gonna let john talk to, uh, talk a little bit about the red pill apocalypse he's gonna explain in as much detail as his brain can afford him to on exactly what the the title of the episode today is all about you guys are going to be amazed with some of the stuff you hear. Some of it's going to amaze you. Some of it's going to scare you, especially if you have a certain ideological uh, mindset when it comes to politics. Um, just the last word in this segment, though, I won't let John speak again because I have his mic turned off. Here's the deal, guys. Weaponizing the welfare state. Just what we just talked about. Everything we just said proved what I was talking about. So it looks like I was right. Weaponize the welfare state. It's the SNAP program on steroids because a stimulus does nothing but give you the ability essentially to just go in and buy as many groceries as you can because everything else is shut down. All right, guys, after the break, we'll be back and John will uh, explain Red Pill Apocalypse. All right, guys. All right, guys, we're back from the break. Now, I'm going to turn it over at this point to John. He is going to explain to you. Um, he's, going, he's going to present some pretty crazy facts, uh, explaining to you how, by the year 2028, a Republican slash conservative will not be able to serve as the president of the United States. Will not... Uh, I guess under this concept, Republicans and Democrats, a Republican or a conservative-minded candidate will not have the opportunity after 2028 to statistically serve in the White House. And he's going to explain all that to you. I'm going to turn it over to him this time. John, go ahead and enlighten the people. Well, I've done a lot of reading and watching and things like that over the last several months and I, I didn't start out going down this road but it just led there and it, and it led me to a very uncomfortable place. Um, the statistics were thrown in front of me where at the rate that we have uh, immigration into the United States where two-thirds of immigrants to the United States do favor leftist policies. Uh, uh, often it's the policies that came from Are their we homes. talking legal immigration or are you talking all immigration that's a huge well theoretically all that matters is the legal the ones that vote but now we have a question of are we getting illegals to vote as well and uh, i'll say this it doesn't matter if it's legal or illegal per se that the view is two-thirds leftist two-thirds just how many of them get to cast that okay. two-thirds but to the, that vote is just a question. Leftist, a.k.a. liberal. Liberal. Yeah. So, at the rate of immigration, with that ideology, what you're getting is more people 
I think more people are realizing that conservatism is a better way to go, or I'm actually not a full-blown conservative. I'm what we call a, I'm more of a libertarian, little L libertarian conservative. I can't go with the regular party of the, of the uh, libertarians, but I digress. Um, at the rate that we're coming in, we're converting people, but we're replacing them. And I want to say that again because I kind of got off, off track there for a second. We may be making headway. You may be winning hearts and minds, but those hearts and minds are getting replaced by people that are um, from a liberal or socialist mindset. So does it matter how many people you get? The way it is with the, dem with the demographic shifts in America uh, and people moving around, I'll get into why they're moving in a moment, from an electoral point of view, we've got the key states, uh, one of the big ones, Texas. Texas is going blue. Uh, right now it's, for lack of a better word, they like to think they're a red state, but they're a purple state. They've got some liberal strongholds and they're getting so much of an influx of population that they're, they're turn, they've turned purple and at some point they're going to be blue. As soon as Texas falls, the rest of the country falls. It's just simple as that, and I can use that one state. But that's not the only one. Look at Florida. Uh, Florida, I think that they, they're, they're a solid purple state. I don't know that they're going to immediately shift to blue, but they can go either way. And then we have other key states. But the point is, with the rate we're going, a lot of these purple states are not going to remain purple. Well, Texas... Immigration is one of the main reasons that it's more of a purple state. Of course, Florida is a, the migration pattern you were talking about. A well, lot of eastern or northeastern uh, liberals, as they get older, they retire. They move to Florida for the warmer weather, and they take their ideologies with them. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Right now, California, and by the way, California used to be a red state. Um, Within my lifetime, I remember it well. I do as well. Um, people are leaving states like California. I think they said California is losing 2 million people a year, uh, or maybe even less it's, than I that. I read an article, that, and the title of it was Mass Migration from the State of Gold. Exactly. So why are they, why are they leaving? Here's the, fun, here's the irony. Why are they leaving? They're leaving to get away from the high taxes, the high... Um, well, the low quality of living, the outrageously high cost of living, all of the things that liberalism has created. And then they go to Texas, they go to wherever. I think Arizona's picking up a lot. And then they try to enact the exact thing that they left in Texas there. Now they join your home, uh, and I, I, I have fun with homeowners associations. I'm sorry if you're on one. They join the homeowners association. The next thing you know, they're measuring your grass to see if it's uh, two inches long or more. <laughs> uh, and, then, and if you got your, uh, you know, your Kirby put back every morning, suddenly they're minding everyone's business. Uh, well, then they're bringing that to the state and uh, the, the local and state governments. Now you're going to have. Uh, laws restricting just about anything and they're definitely coming for you know things like your guns things like that how do i know that look at virginia and it was a hundred percent due to people moving in migration demographic shift they came in and tried to make every gun owner in virginia a felon overnight so 
that's happening. And once certain key states fall, you're not going to have a conservative voice in America. You'll, uh, as uh, William and I said earlier, you're still going to have Republican. It's just they're not going to represent you as a conservative. They're only a, uh, political parties are only a team. They're going to build a platform that they think that they can get elected. Uh, I, after 2028, I don't think that, as, as a whole, the Republicans are reactionary. So they're going to lose badly, and then they're going to go back to the drawing board and say, what did we do to lose? And then they're going to react by creating a new party platform, and there will be nothing conservative in it. So let's see, you said 2028. Yes. So that means a second term for Trump and a one term for Pence. Pence will never be a president. Well, I don't know now. That's uh, They said the same thing about George H.W. Bush, and he ended up being a one-termer. And that was, trust me, that was, I can see why the, the Democratic slash Liberal Party at that point kind of took control of the White House because of some of the the bunglings of George H.W., the, the original Bush. I, you had to qualify because there was, you know, two in office and one tried, you know, religiously to try to get in and couldn't. Please so, clap. So, so, we're looking, <laughs> so we're looking at another um, Reagan, Bush, Trump, Pence possibly. So you, don't, so. you don't think Pence will be just kind of the kind of the preempted successor? Is that you don't see that happening? Uh, I don't see it because, and I don't, and I look. I think Pence is a great guy. I think he is a nice guy. I would probably trust him with my life. But he really needs a personality. Um, let me say this: um, we're at a society. We're now politics is entertainment let's face it right and it's getting more extreme uh look how look at trump on twitter he's yeah. tweets something blows something up half yeah, the country he breaks loses. the internet when he tweets that's for sure exactly well then but look at obama beforehand he but, became a personality well, now, now let me qualify what i just said when i said i just i i'm just naturally assuming pence after eight years as the vp is uh is the most logical choice to be president next. It was the same situation with Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. Ronald Reagan, even at, at the age he was when he entered office, that dude was still a pretty charismatic guy. He kept the Democrats on their toes. He kept the Republicans, he kept everybody on their toes. And he was, and let's just be honest with you, for eight years, we went through a very prosperous stretch there. I mean, I was a young guy then. I, and until Trump came around, I would have probably left this earth believing that Reagan was probably the best president that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I'm not saying, I'm not still not giving Trump the credit that a lot of folks are. I still think in my mind, Ronald Reagan, to this point in my life, has still been the best president that I ever had the opportunity to call the commander-in-chief. Um, Trump's doing a lot of things that has to be done. But that's the same thing Reagan did. Reagan came in office and did stuff that had to be done. Now, I will say this. I wish he'd go back and look at the archives and see how Reagan was able to actually work with both sides. Well, If he would work a lot more on his um, bipartisan interpersonal skills, it would, it would make his life a lot easier. Um, but Pence is the exact, he is the exact George H.W. Bush. Doesn't have a lot of personality. Not the best uh, example of what I would consider a world leader. I mean, I don't know, Pence might be a fantastic leader when he gets the chance. But I see a lot of similarities between Reagan, Bush, and 
and Trump Pence. I agree. Uh, the problem is, is I think that a lot of great, it is, um, I think that a lot of great people that have leadership skills are going to completely just be overshadowed because yeah. now you have to be over the top to get attention. Well, see, now you got my curiosity, Pete. Since I know that the last truly conservative-minded leader of the free world is going to be whoever serves that final term, twenty, what is it, 24 to 28. Right. I got to know who you think it's going to be then. I don't know yet. Uh, I do know. You don't see anybody kind of, you know, kind of a kind of a young gun that's gonna. Okay, uh, this not a young gun because he had a shot and didn't make it. Oh, here we go again. But now this is where I get real controversial with people. If it was me going into this as Trump, I would ditch pants on the ticket. Uh, I really would. Uh, Trump needed Pence to get elected. Oh, yeah. Your 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 running mate is always going to be somebody that draws something that you don't have. That's the way to. What exactly does Trump not have right now? Nothing. That's that's true. <laughs> when it comes to the Republican yeah, side, yeah, that's, that's true. He is the ticket. Whoever's on his coattails has to be somebody. He is the guy that got elected with the support of neither party. (laughs) Exactly. So when you think about it, Trump is the ticket. Right. So it can't be a, I need somebody to fortify where I'm weak. We can look at this in a completely different way and say, we need to be grooming the next president. Uh, Well, let me ask you a question. Wouldn't that turn off some of the truly conservative people that are voting, voting for Trump the first time? By dumping pants and going with another running mate, wouldn't that turn off a lot of those uh, those those grassroots voters? Yes, and I'll tell you what, it would turn them off, and they'll vote for him anyway. Oh, really? Because what's your choice? That's, I mean, you make a valid point, but uh, well, I'm just wondering why rock the boat. I guess would be my because of 2024. You need to start... Let me ask you this. Let me me turn this around on you. I understand that the next president, as soon as the election's over, and and I'm not foretelling the future, but I truly believe Trump will probably be elected again. I think so. Um, I understand the the next election starts the day he goes into office, because essentially he's lamed up from day one. But... I want to ask you this. Who do you see as a powerhouse, a leader in the Republican Party that is not Trump? Who do you see as the voice? You know, Who's I, the leadership coming up? I've watched a lot. Of, I've watched a lot of these guys kind of have their moment, kind of run to the top and then taper back off. Um, I've seen a lot of them true colors show through after they kind of ascended to, to the, you know, to be the preeminent, uh, you know, the the new throne bearer. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, and that, yeah, I'm going to be honest with you. The reason I brought that up is because when you told me two or three days ago that you were going to explain to me how by 2028 a conservative would never serve in the White or would be out of the White House after 20, you're not saying that it's not going to happen again. You're just saying not under the current format. 
Yeah, we'll get that. I'm I'll just saying, I'm trying to figure out, when you said that, I'm trying to figure out who in the world is going to take us, like, who, who's going to ride that ship to the bottom of the ocean is what I'm trying to figure out. You know, who's going to be on the Titanic when it goes down, so. Well, I think I have my answer, if, if it was me. Okay, I, 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 would, I, I would, here it is. Well, I asked who who is probably the strongest voice in the Republican right. Party outside of Trump right now. Right. And I think it's Ted Cruz. You know, and I knew that's where you were headed a while ago when I heard you say, well, he's already had one shot. And look... I, and I hope Ted Cruz learned a lot from. I know he I did. I hope he was humbled by his well efforts the, the first time. So well, and I will say this: I'm gonna. I need to put a disclaimer in here. In the primary, when Trump was running, I voted for Ted Cruz. Right. But I wanted Trump to win. Now that sounds crazy, but I made a promise, and I keep my promise. Listen, I, I saw a lot of stuff in Cruz I liked also. Well, I, I saw bits and pieces of quite a few of the candidates I like. I wish I could have more two or three of them together and made a candidate. Oh, yeah, but I made, I, I made a promise that if I ever had somebody that ran for president that had genuinely fought for my gun rights, you know, I'm a Second Amendment right, guy, right, right. that if I ever had an opportunity, I would vote for him for president. Cruz did that. He, he argued on the floor of the Supreme Court for gun rights. I kept and, my And I promise. will say this about Cruz. Cruz, even after his defeat, and it was a humbling defeat to Trump, Cruz now is one of his biggest lobbyists. I was getting to that. Cruz is a guy that's actually gone to bat for Trump when a lot of Republican leadership won't. Well, I was going to get to that. Cruz has impressed me so much since he got beat that he has been the per- he, he's He stood by principles, not by people. Right. And he said, hey... I'm standing behind him. This is what we have to do. He's backing. He, he's, he's a fighter. And he's very intelligent. He's a lawyer. He's argued on the floor of the Supreme Court. So what I'm saying is, now let me, let me back up one quick thing. However, if Cruz had, got, had beaten Trump, it would have been a disaster for us. Because we would have, we needed a real fighter, a real bulldog, to look just how corrupt our deep state was. Cruz would have never discovered that because he's too nice of a guy. Well, he used to be too nice of a guy. Uh, or too polite, I guess that's the word I'm looking right. for. Um, I think he's learned some lessons from Trump's presidency. Uh, he's also learned some stuff about himself. What I'm getting at is, I already said that Trump's the party. He's the, he's the powerhouse. Bring in somebody like Cruz as a vice president for the sole purpose of grooming him to be ready to hit the ground running on day one and continue the policies. Um, And that's the way you would sell it. That a Cruz presidency after Trump would be a we're hitting the ground day one no no honeymoon period, no adjustment period, we're just moving on. Um, And that goes back into how well uh, Cruz has been working with Trump since. Well, now what you espoused earlier—it doesn't really. Does it really matter who the candidate is? Who the? I think Trump's already getting elected in twenty uh, twenty in November. Yeah, but what about twenty twenty four? I think that well, if, if he can does sell it, it, does it matter if Cruz is the candidate? Well, you and I have—we talked about this some earlier. The numbers we have on the immigration 
is it could be as early as 2024 that we're locked that we can elect or it well, yeah, could be as late as said, 2028 you, you said absolutely the latest that you could consider a conservative leadership in the white house would be 2028 right so you're saying within eight years nothing that a conservative-minded voter can do is going to stop this the new train not the trump train Mm-hmm. The immigration train from running us over. Well, and what is it going to take? To, well, let me say this: if that's the case, let's say for argument that we have twenty that twenty twenty eight is our number. Let's okay. let's let's get optimistic. Okay. Uh, putting somebody in that has the intelligence to move around the system and maybe the gumption. Hopefully, he's learned from Trump to push policies that are going to change that. Um, is going to be needed. At this point, you're either going to lose your patient or you're going to save your patient and you've got to say what things are you willing to do to, to save it. So we got to have somebody that's willing to do that. Now, honestly, I like Cruz, but I don't believe that anybody that's in our country right now because they're so worried about poli- being politically correct and not hurting feelings, I don't believe anybody in our country is capable or willing to do what it's going to take. And what I'm really talking about is shutting immigration, shutting it off. Um, you know, it's amazing Mexico just closed their borders because they didn't want our infected uh, Americans to go into Mexico and they're being praised for it. Trump's been trying to shut down the borders for years. He's been villainized for it. Isn't that amazing? It is. Well, the thing is, is um, there's 333 million Americans in our country right now, and a large percentage of them are on some type of government assistance. Right. Do we honestly need immigration? Do we need it? Now, somebody's going to say, yeah, but we were built on immigration. Of course we were. Now, we, we, were, were, a, we, were we, we were built by immigration. They came here and they worked their butts off. And they built what is America today. Well, but they say that that's at the heart of what we're supposed to be, the land of opportunity where everybody can come to. Um, then I need to leave because that's basically saying that I have a house that you all can come raid my refrigerator. Right. Um, guys, the reason we were the land of opportunity where every immigrant could come and be willing to work to create something is because we were a big, huge continent of nothing. That's true. Of course, the Native Americans are going to say, yeah, well, we were here. Yeah, have that immigration policy work for you guys. Yeah, let's don't get started on that. That'll be a whole other episode, guys. Yeah, so have this blanket. All right, so, um, um, all right, well, that's pretty good information. Kind of scary a little bit, 2028, especially for any conservative-minded individual or any voter. Now, a couple of closing thoughts. First of all, we were going to talk about this earlier, and I forgot all about it. Tell uh, tell the listeners red pill. What does red pill actually mean? Red pill is uh it refers back to one of my favorite movies of all time, The Matrix, where you've got everybody living in a fantasy world, uh, a, a digital world, and when I think Neo, the uh, the protagonist, uh, meets. Oh, what was the guy? I'm assuming that's the Keanu Reeves character you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and then oh, who played? Meets the Lawrence Fishburne character. But I'm trying to remember what his name name was. Uh, Morpheus. Morpheus. Yeah, Morpheus. The cool dude with the sunglasses. Yeah. I found out where I could get those sunglasses. Anyway. You digress. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He offers him a blue pill or a red pill. And the blue pill, if you take it, you go to sleep, you 
wake back up in your fantasy world, never remember this, and life is good. That sounds like a liberal mindset. Yeah, exactly. But if you take the red pill, you'll wake up and see the world as it truly is. And there's wow. the choice. That's, that's, a, that's a real political undertone buried in a pretty popular movie. Absolutely. So anyway, that's what Red Pill stood for, guys. Right, closing comment. 2028, the apocalypse. 2028, conservatism is is dead in the water. No, no, no. I'm going to get you on that. I didn't say it's dead in the that's water. That's what it sounded like to me. But here's what I'm going to ask yeah. you about that. So let's say it happens by 2028. How long does it take the conservative movement to reestablish itself to put a candidate back in the White House? Well, give me just a... What your opinion time frame? What we're looking at? Um, does it does it depend on what type of leadership that we're able to muster up, or what, what's going to affect that? Well, you're going to really get me going down a crazy road here. The answer that I got is it won't happen. It won't be a generation. It, it'll be a generational thing. Wow. The, the only time. And when you say generational, that's tradition. That's like twenty, like a twenty-year stretch. So that's, so that's five, Maybe even that's, longer than that's that. five electoral cycles you're talking about. Well, you're really, now you're fighting against the demographics. The only thing that changes people's voting habits, and, and I don't even know if certain things will, but the only thing that's going to make real fundamental changes is crisis, is need, is collapse. It, you know, so right now, the Russia is more of a capitalist country. They had to do a complete 180 from what they were because of the collapse, because of the failure. And it took we quite have, a bit of upheaval and civil war and absolutely. destruction of, of life and limb and property. And That's it. What's not going to happen, let's say this, what's not going to happen is you're going to suddenly go down the road of liberalism. Oh, I, I don't want to use liberalism, socialism. You're not going to go down that road and just wake up one morning, turn on the TV and say, hey, wait a minute. Maybe we were wrong. Let's change this and go back to conservatism. You have to have a strong, real catalyst to make that happen. And that catalyst always uh, involves strife and pain. People have to say, I'm uncomfortable enough in my present situation that I'm willing to change what is. And that's the reality. Um, and I said I mentioned generational is because that that shift is not going to happen with people that have already made a shift to socialism. Those have people have to die out. Um, people don't like to be wrong about what they believe. They get very emotionally invested in their beliefs, and typically they have to die off um, before that anything will change. People largely get into a belief, they stay there. Um, I'll say the only thing that's going to put a conservative back in power in this country will not be the political process. Uh, the political process will have failed. Um, when you get to that point, you only have one of two options available to you, either bloodshed, civil war, and I hate to say it, a civil war too or a peaceful divorce, which you're talking about a Balkanization, ref referencing the Balkan region of, U of Europe when the three, four, I believe, countries split, uh, the former Yugoslavia. Of course, their Balkanization 
involved a lot of bloodshed. It was not a peaceful divorce. Um, but that's where we're, that's where we are. Um, the analogy you made earlier offset. Let, let the listeners hear that as we close out. Which one? Were you talking about staying together for the kids? Oh, uh, I, I've used this analogy. We're, we're so divided as a country right now, that's a perfect analogy. Yeah, I look at it as we are basically a dysfunctional family with a five-year-old. We come home from work every day, we fight, we even hate each other, and I hate to use the word hate, but it certainly seems that way. Uh, we don't even want to be around each other, but we're staying together for the kids. Well, if you talk to kids from a household like that, they will say, we just wish the parents got divorced. We don't like to live in this toxic environment. It's destroying us. Uh, I've had plenty of friends say the best thing that ever happened was that their parents divorced. And I'm not advocating divorce. I'm a parent and I'm a married person. But that's where we are. We come home every day and we fight because we are now at a point where we can't compromise. We can't. There is either you see it one way or you see it another. I use the analogy of abortion. We're at a point right now, it's, it's either a clump of cells that you can just have a medical procedure, and I'm using quotes on that, to fix the problem or you kill the baby in the womb. There's no in-between on that, and that's where we are. There's no wiggle room. There's no compromise. No gray area, guys, and that's coming straight from the gray man. And that's, I feel so out of place. Uh, that's where we're going to end it today with the, the thoughts of the great man explaining to us exactly where we kind of sit in the world as it stands right now. Uh, like I said, I want to thank John for being here today. Uh, like I said, he's going to be back for two or three more episodes before the season ends with us. Um, so check him out, the great man, on Facebook at his community page uh, at The Spaces Between. Correct. There's also a way to search for it. Also, you can check us out on Facebook at World of Wally at our community page. And as always, guys, Wally out. Hey, guys. Join me, William Wally, every Tuesday and Friday as I share my thoughts and have engaging discussions with various guests, tackling all types of topics from religion, politics, sports, social media, and also current events, and everyday observations from my very own life. Just a small town guy with some big time opinions. Love me or hate me, but you will want to listen in weekly on the podcast, World of Wally.